I stand before you this morning as a grateful person. I'm grateful to this church for this opportunity to come before you this morning. I'm grateful to the forefathers and foremothers of our faith who said women have a place in ministry and who have affirmed that call. And this church has done that for me in so many ways and has done that for other women, and I'm thankful. And I'm also thankful to have some of my family here this morning, my brother and my sister, uh, and my parents will be coming later um, to the later service today. We celebrated a milestone birthday last night for my father. I won't tell you how old he is, but there were 65 balloons at the party. So we had a great time. Would you please pray with me? God, would the words of my mouth and the meditation of our collective heart be holy and pleasing unto you? Amen. In my work as a pastoral counselor, I have the distinct privilege, and it really is a privilege, to sit with people as they explore all different aspects of their lives. And some of these are wonderful experiences, like marriage, the birth of a child, graduations, and new jobs. But many of them are quite painful. Divorce, unemployment, addiction, abuse of various kinds, eating disorders, and the list could go on. And with sitting with these people through some of their toughest times, I've heard various questions raised. And maybe you've asked yourself one of these questions, such as, why did my husband leave me? Why did my wife have an affair? Are my job skills even marketable today? Why would he hit me? How can I love my body again when it was touched in that way? How can I forgive myself for what I've done? How can I even tell you what I've done? And if I tell you, counselor, will you still sit with me? Will you still listen to me? And the questions go on, and yes, and sometimes they're questions for me, but ultimately they're questions for God. So we sometimes just sit in silence together and wait and hope that God speaks. And underneath the variety of these questions is really this one core question, I think. Am I enough? Am I enough is a question that runs deep into the most vulnerable places of our hearts. And if we're honest, we've all asked this question. Am I enough expresses one of those most raw emotions we can have as people, which is shame. Shame is a heavy, heavy emotion and it's often very misunderstood. It gets confused with guilt a lot. But I believe guilt is a healthy emotion given to us by God because it helps us know when we've done wrong, it moves us toward confession, and it moves us toward reconciliation. On the other hand, shame is a feeling that one is wrong, not that one has done wrong, but that one's very being has something wrong with it. The lead researcher on shame currently is Dr. Brene Brown. I highly recommend her work. She has a TED Talk out, um, several TED Talks, and you may want to listen to that sometime. But she states, guilt is powerful, but its influence is positive, while shame is destructive. Shame erodes our courage and fuels disengagement. Our forefather in the faith, Jacob, he was very familiar with this emotion. His whole life seems to be motivated, to the, for the, about, motivated by the desire to be enough, which drives him to behave in sneaky, underhanded, and deceptive ways. He carries his insecurity throughout most of his life, and the level of shame just continues to build in the scripture until it's quite palpable 
in what was read for us this morning by Samuel. Yet this scripture is the end of his journey, and to understand Jacob, we literally have to go back to the very beginning of his life. He's born in the 25th chapter of Genesis, verse 21, and it reads, Isaac, his father, praised the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and his wife, Rebekah, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is to be this way, why do I live? She went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples born of you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The elder shall serve the younger. When her time came to give birth, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red with, his hand, oh, with a hairy mantle of hair, and his name was Esau. Afterwards, his brother came out with his hand gripping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Jacob is a name that comes from the Hebrew word heel, which really means he supplants. So already from the beginning, from the moment of his birth, we get a feeling for what he's going to struggle with his entire life. From the moment of his birth, he fears not being enough. And that motivates him to grasp on to whatever he can to succeed or to be first. And in this case, it's literally his brother's heel. Then in chapter 27 of Genesis, we see the same pattern emerge. The trickster Jacob is at it again. Esau, who, if you remember from the story, was the hunter brother, returns from the field famished. And Jacob sees his brother's desperate desire for food and says, Hey, Esau, how about you just sell me your birthright for some stew? And Jacob clearly manipulates Esau here, and Esau clearly is not the brightest of men. And this gives us yet another view of Jacob's deep desire to prove his worthiness. It's almost like he says, if I could just get that birthright, I'd feel secure. It would prove that I'm enough, and it would prove that I am worthy. So Jacob succeeds at stealing Esau's birthright. But as is the case with many of us who carry shame, that didn't fix it for Jacob. It wasn't enough. He still didn't feel like he was good enough. So in Genesis 27, we see him take it a step further. With his help of his mother, Rebecca, he deceives his father into giving him the blessing. The blessing is supposed to go to the older brother. So Isaac asks Esau to go out and bring him back something that he has hunted, and they will prepare it, and he will give him the blessing. So Rebecca, hearing this, says, Jacob, go prepare, go get me two goats, and I'll prepare them. And then you can go into your father and get the blessing. So Jacob goes, uh, but Esau's really hairy and I have smooth skin. How am I going to do this? So he literally puts hair on his body, puts on his brother's clothes, and goes into his father and steals the birthright, the blessing. He's already stolen the birthright. So his father looks at him and says, are you really my son Esau? He gives Jacob a way out. He gives Jacob a way to, to tell the truth about himself. And Jacob says, oh yeah, I'm Esau. I'm Esau. So he gets the blessing. As you can imagine, Esau was a little angry about this. And when he finds out that his brother has stolen the blessing, do you know what he says? Is it not right that you're named Jacob? Basically, he says, 
This name of he supplants, it's pretty fitting for your character. You'll lie, you'll steal, you'll cheat in order to earn your way to the top. So Esau becomes enraged and vows to kill his brother after his father passes away. So now Jacob is on the run. He flees to his uncle Laban's house, and things seem to calm down a bit for him there. He stops acting out so much. Of course, he has to work for 14 years in order to earn the love of Rachel, um, so he was busy. But deep-seated shame doesn't lay dormant for very long. So in chapter 30, Jacob is preparing to leave with his wives, and Laban goes to him and says, you know, could you stay a little bit longer because God has been blessing me when you're here with me? And he says, sure, I can stay. And Laban says, what wage should I pay you in order to stay? And Jacob says, just the spotted and speckled livestock. No, no biggie. And there weren't really speckled and spotted livestock. So Laban said, great, yeah, we can make that deal. So Jacob, what he does is he takes all the livestock out to the field. He pulls back the end of a rod, which shows the white part, and he places it in front of the livestock, the female livestock. And it was believed that whatever the female livestock were gazing upon, that is what the calves and sheep would look like when they were born. So a whole herd of speckled and spotted livestock are born, and Jacob becomes filthy rich. So let's take inventory now. He has the birthright, he has the blessing, he has two wives, and he's filthy rich. And does this fill his void? Does he feel good enough now, shame-free? No, he now ends up on the run from Laban. So he's on the run from his brother, and he's on the run from his uncle. And God says, you know what, Jacob, why don't you go on back to your homeland? You know, it's all right that Esau wants to kill you. Just go on back. It's fine. So that's where today's text starts. So Jacob sends a peace offering to his brother in the form of livestock and knows that in a matter of hours he will need to face his brother. And he knows he's likely facing his own death. The text says he sends his wives, his maids, and his children ahead of him, and, quote, Jacob was left alone, verse 24. And in some ways, this feels like the first time in Genesis that this story slows down and we get a clear picture of the state of Jacob's life. While he may be a rich man with wives, maids, livestock, at the end of the day, he's alone. He's alone, he's afraid, he's humbled, and he's vulnerable. And maybe this is where he starts to feel a little bit familiar to us. We've all been there. We've all been in dark places where we've run out of tricks, we've run out of stamina, and we can't run any longer. We're left alone, we're in the dark, and we're afraid. Jacob spent his whole life, literally his entire life, trying to be enough Yet here he is, all alone and in the dark. How many of us spend our lives doing that? Some of us, for a variety of reasons, never feel like enough. We spend our lives trying to prove our worthiness to other people, ourselves, and maybe even to God. And society lies to us and says we can get our enoughness through a variety of empty means. Our looks, our jobs, our money, our stuff, our status, our relationships— And while those things do add happiness to our lives, they can never fix the well of emptiness caused by the shame that some of us carry. So there we are with Jacob, sitting on the side of a riverbank, all alone and afraid. 
Then out of nowhere, the text says, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak, verse 24. What? Who is this man that wrestles with him? Later, the text tells us the man is God. And Jacob holds on to God for dear life and wrestles with him until the closing in of dawn. Jacob's hold is so fierce that God strikes him on the hip as if to disable him or to get away somehow. God requests that Jacob let him go, and Jacob refuses. He says, I will not let you go until you bless me. Brothers and sisters, listen to these words of Jacob because they're the wisest words he ever says. I will not let you go until you bless me. In our dark moments, in our moments of fear and self-doubt, hold on to God, call out to God, and hold on with a fierceness that cannot be ignored. Pray wholeheartedly for a blessing and see what God can do. In the next verse, God asks Jacob for his name. Jacob. My name is Jacob. And God replies, you shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and humans and have prevailed. At its very heart, this text is one of transformation. And at its heart, our faith is transformation. God looks at Jacob and says, no longer will your name be the supplanter, the trickster, the one who strives, but instead you will be transformed to reflect the very nation whom I love. When we enter a relationship with God and go into the waters of baptism, we are transformed. No longer is our name the divorced one, the abused one, the unemployed one, the addicted one, the one who is not enough, the one who is full of shame. God has said to us, Isaiah 43, 1, I have called you by name and you are mine. The text says, Jacob called the place Penel, which means face of El, face of God, for I have seen God face to face. In order to be truly transformed, we have to see God face to face. We have to expose our guilt, our shame, our not enoughness, and trust that God will see us and love us anyway. So many of us hide our shame from others, and we try to hide it from God too, and it can keep us from entering into a meaningful relationship with God. Maybe it's that we don't feel worthy. It could be for lots of reasons. But here's the truth and the good news. If we enter into a relationship with God, we will never be the same. Never, ever. The text says the sun rose upon Jacob as he passed Penel, limping because of his hip. Sometimes coming face to face with God is painful. And we don't talk about that, but we walk away with a limp. The pain is undoubtedly scary, but undeniably worth it. Earlier in Genesis, there's the creation story. And it's been quoted earlier in this scripture, I mean, in this sermon series that we've done. Pastor Bob talked about it in one of his past sermons. And on the sixth day, God created humankind. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and following. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness. And then down in verse 27, so God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. God blessed them. Sisters and brothers, let's not take it lightly that we carry the very image of God 
in our very beings. <clears throat> in the second telling of creation, a very personal and loving God stoops down and creates humanity out of the dirt and then breathes life into the nostrils of the human. Breath in this passage come from the Hebrew word ruach, which refers not simply to the life given to humanity by God, but God's very spirit. God's spirit came upon people and empowered them for special service. Folks, God's very nature is in us. It's in me, and it's in you. And we know this is the Holy Spirit. And if we fully recognize the love that God poured out in this spirit, we would cast off our fear, our doubt, and our shame. And that's the good news. However, and there's always a however, right? There's bad news. So we've established through Scripture we're made in God's image. We bear God's Spirit within us in the Holy Spirit. If we have an intimate relationship with God, we can hold on fiercely and ask for a blessing and be transformed. But the bad news is this. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 On this side of life, we have to encounter our sin and our guilt, our real guilt. So in reality, we're never going to be enough. We're never going to say or do enough good to be good enough. We're never going to say or do enough good to be good enough. But this is where faith comes into the equation. Like Jacob, we can have an intimate relationship with God and see God face to face. Our way of doing this is by being in a relationship with Jesus Christ. So when God sees us, he sees the shining face of the sun. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but it is Christ who lives in me. This life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Christ died for you and for me, gave himself up. This act casts out our shame, our wrongness, and our not good enoughness. We can let go of our fear of not being enough because through faith in Jesus Christ, we become enough in God. God saw us in all of our brokenness and chose us. We are chosen, we are free, we are loved, we are enough. Let's pray.